I don't think you have any notion of the true strengths and depths of the opposition to our work. There's a whole medical establishment, of course, baying to send Freud to the auto da fe. But that's as nothing compared to what happens when our ideas begin to trickle through in whatever garbled form they're relayed to the public. The denials, the frenzy, the incoherent rage. All right. It's Jason McCoy. Nelson Boyer. And we are the cast of Put Him on, on the Couch. couch. Welcome, welcome, welcome back, everyone. Episode two. Episode two. If you remember last week, we basically established our podcast by bringing you an our inaugural, if I could say that, our inaugural episode about the life and times of Sigmund Freud, the guy for whom put him on the couch, I guess you could say, was inspired. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, the feedback I've received has been pretty much universal. I sounded like a high-pitched Greek god. Yeah, and I sounded like a young Barry White. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, today we want to talk about something that maybe um, the listeners will find interesting, especially given the fact that it's, it's Father's Day coming say, up. It's coming up on Father's yeah, Day. Father's right. Day. Yeah. And if you're a father like myself and Mr. Bowyer here, you can't help but to wonder from time to time, Am I doing it right? That's a question. Uh, does father really question. know best? Uh, and while it is kind of fun to go back and look at what people like Sigmund Freud might have thought, I believe that there's something that maybe has improved since him. There's got to be some advice, some theory, something that has improved since Freud. Do you have a, do you have a favorite thing you do on Father's Day? Uh, I like to sleep in and be awakened by my children. This Father's Day, I plan to be at home, and I anticipate my kids coming in and waking me up with cuddles and kisses and maybe a little fruit breakfast and a homemade card, man. Did you ever notice the double standard of the days? Like Father's Day is the day where fathers are supposed to spend time with their kids, but sure. Mother's Day is the day where fathers are supposed to spend time with their kids and mothers go you know, drink wine? Well, you know, I think it's only fair when you consider that when I'm out and about with my kids, people will say, oh my gosh, that's so nice that you're babysitting. They always did that to me. They might are a little older than yours, but they always said that to yeah. me. They're like, oh, this is awesome. What a cool dad. And I'm like, yeah. no, not really. Wow. Yeah, don't give me too much credit. I mean, I'm not brave or like, you know, winning an award by just doing what dads I thought supposed to do. Now, granted, I didn't get an owner's manual. I don't have like a help button on you know, the remote for my for my kids, but I will say that I'm pretty sure that I shouldn't think about spending time with my kids as something extra or no, something like no, award-winning. Yeah. It did get a little weird when I would breastfeed. I yeah. would get some <laughs> yeah. some looks. Well, that's why we're called mammals, and even you have mammalian or mammary, mammary glands. I do. Yeah, we'll have to um, save that for another episode. So look, let's get into this parenting podcast. Let's talk a little bit about Parenting, uh, a little history, a little, you know, nobody ever chooses to be a parent. It's not a choice. It chooses you. Oh. Uh, it's, it's not a choice. Wow, It is not a choice. It chooses you. Okay. So throughout history and today in different cultures, precisely what it means to be a parent is a question up for considerable debate and one with seemingly limitless answers. Just consider our own country's history. Abraham Lincoln once said that love is a chain whereby to bind the child to its parents. If that's true, it's probably the only universal truth about parenting in American history. Puritan children were not seen as little angels. 
They were viewed as sources of additional labor who had to be disciplined into good behavior. Children in such a society would likely have been starved for the typical affection and attention that we associate today with a healthy parental relationship. During the earlier years of the Republic, a fierce spirit of independent-mindedness, self-determination, and individual success would infuse with early values to create new attitudes about child-rearing and toward children more generally. Children were still reserved in public, see, not heard, but heavily doted on by their parents. But with this relaxed attitude came heavy expectations. The rearing of children was accompanied by an understanding that their conduct and development would bring credit upon the family and the new nation. By the time we get to the 1860s, ideas about parenting had slowly shifted among select groups. The rise of a larger middle class had given birth to the modern understanding of the time frame for childhood. There was a push from all levels of government to guarantee education for at least a certain period, and wealthy and middle class parents pushed education more readily. Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln were at the front of this new parenting style. They were affectionate and indulging parents, once letting their youngest son Tad drive a donkey cart through the White House. Now, despite this new permissive attitude, discipline and obedience remained key features of parenting in America. John Watson, a leading behaviorist, argued that children needed to be treated like adults. He wrote, never, never hug and kiss them. Never let them sit in your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight, and then shake hands with them in the morning. Of course, when we get to the genesis of modern parenting, we need to look no further than Dr. Spock. Star Trek fans and detractors can calm down. Dr. Spock was a pediatrician and was born of wealth and privilege in New Haven, Connecticut in 1903. Uh, an impressive physical specimen, he even won a gold medal for rowing in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Spock pioneered the idea that children had unique abilities and needs and that the job of a parent was to attend to those needs patiently and lovingly as they arise. While Spock certainly wanted parents to enjoy the ride and go easy on themselves, we can certainly see his ideas in a world of helicopter moms and parents' rights, where parents seem to feel that controlling the world that their children live in will inevitably lead to emotional health and well-being. So this makes an excellent time to put aside preconceived notions and ideas, lay back, stretch out, and get ready, mom and dad, as we put parenting on the couch. All right, all right, all right. I think they like you, Nelson. I think they like so you. So let's talk a little bit about the history of parenting. Let's start with those Puritans. I mean, in our country, uh, how was parenting viewed from a very early uh, time frame? Well, I mean, you're the historian. You could probably tell me. But when I think about the Puritan era, 17th and 18th century, the Puritanical thought was that children should be seen but not heard. They thought children should be disciplined, be obedient to the parents as well as the people in the community. The parenting quote that comes to my mind is, spare the rod, spoil the child. Some of the great thinkers of that time, some of the great literary giants of the time, were likewise influenced by this Jonathan Edwards, the famous oh. religious writer. He wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Doesn't it seem, though, that this would be an easier time to be a father? Uh, no. No? Uh, not to me, because I know that I would have been working a lot harder than I have to work today, and chances are I wouldn't have uh, a lot of time to spend with my kids. And look, my kids get upset with me sometimes when I ask them to pick up their room. So can you imagine how difficult it might have been if I had said, hey, kids, get out there and work those fields. Get back been. out there. But if you're infused with the certainty and the authority of religion and God, you would look at the discipline as divine, as heavenly. And you say, you know, it's harder to do it. I mean, think about all the things that we do with our kids today, all of the attention we lavish on them, all the pressure that comes with being a dad. If all you had to do was really focus on the discipline, 
man, that seems easier. That seems less stressful. Yeah, I mean, certainly you wouldn't have been in your head maybe as much, um, especially given the fact that uh, during the 17th to 18th century, I imagine that most people, at least most of the people you live near, most of your family members, would have believed similarly to you, right? And yeah, you're right. Having that moral authority makes things certain, makes decision-making somewhat easy. Like you're probably not going to second-guess yourself if your uh, kids are crying and you're trying to decide whether to dote on them or whether to tell them to toughen it up. It's probably a lot easier if you know that, well, I'm actually doing this for their not well-being here on earth, but also their well-being in the afterlife. Today, there are self-help books. There's parenting blogs now. There's 50 different theories. Well, it was like the onus was on the children, which I really liked. I really, <laughs> I mean, think about this, though, right? Because what do we always say? What do we, What is the first commandment? The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. Yeah, right? you got to recognize that first and, and foremost, and or else the what, other ones don't follow. Well, what's below those, right? Honor thy mother, honor thy father. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like, all the onus is on the child. So I can't really screw this up. You must honor thy father. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, you know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, I, I want to make sure for the audience, he was a prominent theologian during the Great Awakening in the 18th century, but his 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 fire and brimstone sort of preachings or sermons were not centered on parenting particularly. Like some of his notable work did provide insights into parenting. In fact, one of his uh, most famous sermons outside of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which I remember from my 12th grade English class, Miss Simpson, shout out to you, although I'm not sure if she's still alive. But he also wrote uh, The Duties of Parents to Their Children. And he said the role of parents in nurturing their children's spiritual growth and moral development was basically paramount. Here's an excerpt if you want to hear it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Parents, it is your duty to instruct your children in the principles and doctrines of religion according to your best understanding and abilities. Let it be constant care to teach them the great and necessary truths of Christianity. I mean, it was uh, what a different what a different time period. So as society becomes more and more secular, what happens to parenting? Hey, that is a great question and a question that I think we should take up on the other side. And we're back. Welcome back, everybody. All right. Well, on the uh, other side of the break, I guess that'd be the side we're not on right now. Uh, we were talking about parenting, ladies and gentlemen, and we were trying to contextualize or put parenting in some sort of historical context. Nelson, I think, was going to ask a question. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, we talk about parent, the fathers of the country, right? Uh, mm, so founding fathers. The founding yeah. fathers. You know, the who's the first founding father? Uh, that would have been Jesus. That's right. No, but, he, he, but was, he was second. He was second. Oh, but you mean before Jesus? Before Jesus. Oh, that would have probably been... Uh, George Washington. You know oh, the, yeah. You know the, the guy with the wooden teeth. You know, not only did he have... I, I had a really good K-12 through education. Yeah, I can tell. South Carolina's best, baby. That's right. Yeah, shout out to K my... K-12. Shout out K to Abbeville High School. What story do you remember about George Washington? What was uh, the first story we learned about George Washington? That he could not tell a lie. That he could not tell a yeah. lie. Which is weird, right? Because it's sort of a message to all of us. Well, I was going to say, I mean, not telling a lie is probably terrible advice if you're going to be a parent. 
Well, George Washington could not be a parent. The father of our country was almost certainly sterile well, from the case of smallpox. Well, that makes sense because anyone who is a parent knows that you have to lie from time to time. When I put my kids to bed and they go, hey, but are you going to bed? I go, yeah, I'll be right behind you. And then, of course, I don't. Or they say, can I have a snack? And I'm like, no, go to bed. You can't eat this late. And then they wake up to go to the bathroom, and I have to hide the popcorn. There, There's actually... A really great book about this uh, famous about book. hiding the popcorn. No, not about hiding the popcorn. About putting children to sleep. It's actually. Um, do we have a censor button? Yeah, we have a censor button. So go what was the, the name? Fu- <laughs> One more time. Go the <laughs> to sleep. Okay, that's how I used yeah. to say it. All right. Yeah, but uh, George Washington had about a smallpox. Um, you know, because uh, Martha Custis had children from a, a previous marriage, okay. and George Washington did want children, but you know. We tell that story about the cherry tree and everything, and it's one of the things that we learn in school to sort of motivate good behavior. It's almost certainly crap. Interesting. Hey, by the way, real quick moment here. You know, George Washington, I don't know a lot about him, but I do know that he didn't actually die of smallpox. Do you know how he died? Uh, Quincy. He died of Quincy. He died of exsanguination because his doctor, Dr. Benjamin Rush, using a well-established technique to treat all sorts of medical problems, bloodlet George Washington to death. Ladies and gentlemen, Benjamin uh, Rush was considered the first psychiatrist here in America. He established the first psychiatric hospital, I believe, in Philadelphia. He was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he is still, I believe, a significant part of the branding or the marketing for the American Psychiatric Association. Really? Yeah. But you were saying about uh, Washington. Yeah, well, when we became a more secular nation, we still needed those type of moral lessons. People liked to tell stories about George Washington. And all through the early part of the 18th century, people liked to embellish. Stories were meant to exaggerate people's greatness or people's ability to do good. They became really popular stories for our youth, for children. And, and again, these are all stories told. Bedtime stories. Bedtime stories, absolutely, absolutely. Parenting remained this institution of, of discipline, of focusing on good behavior. This idea now where we are attentive to our children's needs, that only starts to crop up in the middle and later parts of the 19th century. And then you get... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're making me think about a guy who published a book that sold about 50 million copies in, what, 1947. Who was that? Dr. Benjamin Spock. I'm going to get to Spock. Yeah, pediatrician. I'm going to get to Spock. He yeah. totally screws everybody over. Oh, I don't know about in that. In a good way yeah, sometimes. I, but, yeah, I, I was going to say, maybe he, he, made maybe parenting he was misunderstood. More, he made parenting more difficult. Oh, okay. His prescriptions make parenting difficult. I see, I see. The first president that I can think of that really embodies the Spock method. Really? Lincoln was a middle-class guy, lawyer from Springfield. Now, you, you mean the vampire hunter or the no, president? No, when he wasn't hunting. However, history remembers me before I was a president. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, okay. you know, his son died from a vampire bite. Yep, yep. History remembers the battle, but forgets the blood. You know, back then, and we're going to get into some of this, too. Back then, most families, I mean, if you had six or seven children, you could expect to lose a child. Uh, it was a very different time frame. Well, I mean, there are parts of the world, right? I mean, if we're looking at this cross-culturally, even today, there are parts of the world where 
infant mortality is much greater than we would like for it to be. Well, that certainly affects how people parent. Uh, there are cultures, there are tribes in Africa where infant mortality is so high that when women have a baby, they will give that baby immediately to a wet nurse. Is that right? Who has it for three or four weeks because women there think that it could be a demon baby. Wow. Sent to trick the mother into loving it. Well, I think, and you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think there is and there always has been a relationship between financial well-being and how we choose to parent. Well, and wait a minute. You didn't, s you said choose to parent? How we choose to parent. Uh, I thought on the Parenting's other side, you not said, a choice. yeah, yeah, there you go. Parenting I caught him, ladies and gentlemen. Parenting I caught him. Parenting is not a choice. Becoming a parent is not a choice, but how you the parent, methods, you said the style. The methods that we use to parent. Ah, I see. We I can see. definitely choose different yeah. methods. But but those methods, and I guess might choose us if you consider the, the time we're, we're parenting in, right? And how influential. The time, the circumstances. Yeah, how influential those those thinkers and those moral well, those forces are. Are you a different dad? Or were you a different father when you had one kid? Um, Would you be raising your daughter differently with one child? No, I don't think so. But I can say that I'm a different father than my father was. But I don't know if it's because I'm smarter or better, the science is any better necessarily. I think it's just a time that I'm living in. But I am in better financial shape than any um father figure or father in my recent, I guess, familial past. Well, you know, children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them. Okay. And maybe eventually they forgive them. Well, where was the hate? I've always heard that when they become teens, there's a moment I there. I don't know. Where I was quoting Oscar Wilde. So <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> he <laughs> didn't talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, well, I've heard from parents, I think including yourself, that your, your kids will occasionally hate you. And they'll even say so out I loud, right? I didn't say that. Okay. I said they hate my wife. Oh. I said they hate Amanda. Oh, okay. I didn't say they hate me. Okay. Occasionally. They will. They're really good girls. They're good kids. Um, but, you know, I think that goes to that age of 14, 15. We try to remind ourselves as parents, they really can't help it. They don't have the blockers. They can't contain themselves. They really can't help it. At least, please tell me that's true. From right, a, right. Please tell me that this is not purposeful. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it is. Okay. Um, and, and we'll hopefully, um, later on in this podcast, talk a bit about where some of this might come from, at least biologically and or evolutionarily, and in order to sort of stitch together some of these phenomena across cultures, across time. Yeah. I mean, the question I always go back to is, how much of this is nature and how much of this is nurture, I right? love that question. Yeah, and I, I think love we that definitely question. need to talk about that. But I want to get back to this idea of um, fairy tales or bedtime stories. Right. Sure. When you were talking about that, I Washington guess you were, was, yeah, yeah, that you was, were saying that uh, everybody got that one. Yeah, they were influenced by all of the same forces that we think of as influencing parenting today, right? Yep, absolutely. And some of the same motivation for why bedtime stories were popular then probably are popular today. What 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 is the point of a bedtime story? What is the societal value? There's got to be a parental value here. You know, that's a testable hypothesis. I'm sure there's some ethologist or some developmental psychologist that's looked into it. I have wonderful colleagues over at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, including Dr. Ann Hungerford. Maybe I can ask her or get her on the podcast sometime. To, That'd be awesome. To talk awesome. about Or maybe she knows someone, but you know, might be able to point us in the right direction. Talking again earlier about the bedtime stories, I was thinking about nursery rhymes. Oh, I love it. Right? Nursery. The origin stories behind nursery Mother rhymes. Mother Goose, right? baby. I just Googled here um, 
nursery rhymes and the origins, and it came up with um, 10 disturbing nursery rhyme origin stories to celebrate Nursery Rhyme Week. Did you know that we do we have, have a week for everything? We have a nursery. Is rhyme it a, is it week. national? Is it National Nursery Rhyme you Week? You know, I don't know if it's 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 celebrated in 113 countries according oh to God. according to this very reputable internet source called Book Riot. Okay. So what? Back to this uh, idea of economic parenting. I mean, in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, as we go through the Second Industrial Revolution, the country is starting to boom. And there's something really interesting that happened. So in 1870, 66% of Americans make their living through farming. Mm, all right. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to necessitate entire family unit sure. working as an economic team. Yeah. Uh, in fact, throughout history, I think we can agree, the most single important economic unit has always been the family. Sure. Always. And so that was a big time reality in the 1860s, 1870s. So what you're saying is maybe it wasn't the necessarily done for moral reasons that we work children so hard or that we you know, gave children extra responsibilities or that we didn't see children as sort of their own independent thinkers. Maybe it wasn't the moral aspect that was I think necessarily causing low enrollment in school or graduation rates, but, but perhaps necessity of just living day to day, right? But I think they played off of each other. If you throw a moral component into this and say, this is what you must do, honor thy father. Ah, right. honor, honor thy the mother, family. honor the family, the family, the family. I see. So then maybe your neighbors, if they're sort of living by the same ethos, yeah, maybe it's just easier um, to sort of follow through. and. To well, and you can see this effect in less affluent countries. You can see this in China, for instance, and in a lot of Eastern civilization countries. They're still, you know, predominantly farming, large-scale agriculture, but the focus is not on the child. The focus is on the parent. The yeah. focus is on the elder and ancestor worship, and we can get into all that. But in the 18, in 1870, 66% are still doing the old school way, yeah. farm, all that stuff. 1880, 1880, just 10 years later, it's 50%. In 1890, the 1890 census says two-thirds of Americans were working factory payroll jobs. So in 20 years, we completely flipped. We went from a rural people to an urban yeah. people. Yeah, to an industrialization. Now look, it's right. still the Gilded Age. Yeah. But this capitalist market, 75% of all the world's manufactured goods in 1900 came from U.S. shores. And so we get this incredible wealth. This well, it still does. It still comes from U.S. shores. It just comes from a boat to our shores, and, and we just <laughs> and we collect and hoard it. and consume and, and it, right? And consume it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we, so, you know, I think when you get into that period, though, when you get into 1900 and you really develop a broad middle class um, you're, you know, time has changed, right? When you're farming, you don't have this structured time. So just the very elements of the day have sort of changed. And I really think you see this transformation in how we parent and this focus on making sure that our children are provided for, cared for, loved. And in 1903, as we talked about, bang, who's born? Dr. Spock. Yeah, Dr. Spock. Born Born to affluence. Yeah. He was born yes. in New Haven, Connecticut. And born by the privilege. way, we will talk about Dr. Spock on the other gotta side. Got to get into some Spock. Got to get in. Spock me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. That was the sound of a successful row in crew. That's what that was, Sound baby. of a successful row and crew, which could only mean one thing. Spock it's time. Yes, yeah, it's Spock time. A nice little, uh, set, I set you up right there. How, thank you. I appreciate that. How in the world do you have time 
to write the book on modern parenting. Second, and, and second only to the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Sold more copies than every other book at the time. I don't know if that's true, but it could be true. Yeah. It the Bible was number one. Spock's uh, book. This is the parenting Spock's Bible. Spock's book, yeah, was number two. 50 million copies. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. So tell us something about Spock. You said crew. What do you mean crew? Crew. The man won a gold medal in the Olympics. 1924. No he went way. To yeah, crew. No way. Yeah. Healthful guy. Why didn't I know that? Well, you should. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it all coalesces perfectly this idea of modern parenting, Spock being born in 19... For people that don't know, Dr. Benjamin Spock was a pediatrician, very much influenced by the work of Sigmund Freud and other psychoanalysts of the time. Spock had um, a background in psychoanalytic thought. Uh, he sort of partnered up while a student at Yale with a very influential critic of Freud, including a critic of his Freud's daughter, Anna, named Madeline Klein. Some of our listeners may have heard of Madeline Klein before. So Spock's um, thoughts about parenting were very much influenced early on by Dr. Melanie Klein. But even he and Dr. Klein sort of broke apart, and Spock went, well, the rest is history, went very mainstream and became one of the, if not the most influential thinkers on parenting. Well, can I just point out that, you know, we talked about Freud last week, uh, I think, you know, gave him a good diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of criticisms, uh, a lot of curiosities, but here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Freud recognized stages of development. Yeah. Nobody had broken down childhood that way. And again, it ties into this idea of the timeline changing. If you don't have to go work the fields, we can focus on who you are as a person and what you hope to accomplish. Um, so I, I feel like these two really play off of each other, and Spock is big on the stages or phases of development. He doesn't name them the same way as Freud does, but I think that's a good place to begin with Spock. Yeah. Well, Spock, ladies and gentlemen, wrote, um, again, the preeminent book, the as Nelson said, the, the Bible on um, child care or baby care. Uh, the book was first published in 1947, and it was entitled Dr. Spock's Baby and Child Care. Since it's gone 10th through, edition. Yeah, right? it's gone through 10 iterations, still around today. I believe um, they've even updated it to include um, sort of parenting um, people in the trans community, parenting children wow. who do not identify um, as a cis male or a cis female. So, Well, toward the end of his life, didn't he actually advocate... Um, doing that with young children? I believe you're right. I believe you're right. Which, I mean, that was, that's pretty out there. Yeah, that's for, pretty for out the time. there at the time. I mean, we're yeah, talking yeah. about the mid-90s. Yeah, so uh, with, with Spock, and this is where I was criticizing, or I was joking, but the idea has come full circle by 1947. This is after the war. Um, sure. uh, yeah, we're having the baby boom, but compared to, you know, 1850, people are having fewer and fewer children uh, they have more resources, and there is a need, a movement, uh, where the focus in the American family uh, pivots almost exclusively to the needs and well-being of the child, and that's where we that's where we remain today, I think. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, children become closer to a center of the family after the war. Children's rights, children's needs, children's wants and desires 
become more of a priority, right? We're now starting to see television and other types of media suggest the same. Listen to this clip here. I know you're smart and I'm proud of you. I want you to make some friends this summer. Oops. Climb trees, hop fences, get into trouble. Just wow, like, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's from the that's from the Sandlot. Yeah. No, but it was though. It was the golden age of being a kid. Yeah. You know, the 50s, the 60s. It was really the golden time to be a child. Well, I don't want you to think that children weren't given freedom. Children weren't seen as capable before Dr. Spock's book. Being capable and being given freedom, the motivation for that can be two or even threefold. I think about the former president, Ulysses S. Grant. He was born into a family. Uh, his father was a hide tanner. By the age of 10, I read that Ulysses Grant was buying and trading and selling horses by age 12, sometimes going overnight. That's probably why he started drinking yeah. so young. So clearly, I mean, Ulysses Grant was seen as capable, right? Absolutely. Perhaps seen as more capable than most parents today view their kids. In fact, you know, you could you could make the case that then yeah, maybe we absolutely. do today. Well, we're speaking thematically, of course, but you know these changes didn't take place in America all at once. In rural parts of the country, even today, children still help. I mean, we live with the agrarian calendar, the school calendar. Kids are about to be off for the summer. There is absolutely no reason for this other, right. than, other than cultural. Other You're than this is what we grew right. up with. Yeah, it honestly makes things more difficult when they're off for the summer. Um, Yours which go to year round school. Which is why my kids are in year round school. You lucky bastard. Yeah. So, look, I mean, in rural North Carolina, you know, this state was the biggest employer of child labor. Uh, and, and people always say, well, man, what was it because you paid them less? It had nothing to do with that. Children uh, have little hands. You need them tiny hands to reach inside those cave cracks and pinch all that gold. Uh, I have little hands, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But children, Donald Trump has little hands. Yeah, yeah. So children, children have small hands, and they could work really easily within the confines of a textile mill. They could get their hands within the machinery. Um, and they were working as young as 10, 11 years old. Now, they were working for, for a full wage because their parents would you know, negotiate the contract. But, you know, the way in which we parent in America you know, now is as a result of this great abundance. There's no need for child labor because the family is secure. Uh, and so the focus really is on the future. And, you know, I think there is a Darwinian uh, element to it, but I also think there's a financial element. You have to be wealthy to parent the way we parent in the United States and across the Western world. And isn't that ironic that some would argue that wealth, affluence, power, knowledge, uh, the ability to, to basically um, carve out a much better existence, which I believe most parents would argue is kind of central to their theme of parenting, you know, leave your kids better off than you were. So provide for them, uh, hopefully better than your parents were able to provide for you. Isn't it ironic that the birth rate in some of the more affluent parts of the world, specifically right here in America, are is falling? It is. Yeah. It, it, it is ironic. It's strange, I think, to, well, I mean, I can't think of many times in history where we've had such a low birth rate. A and I wonder, and maybe you can... Certainly not when things were going well. Right? So, we, so I mean, it is boom times, ladies and gentlemen. I know we do have a lot of 
problems in our current economy, right? Well, what you know what the, you know what the top one percent is. In, in the United States, top one uh, percent. What do you have to make to be in the top one percent? Oh, you probably have to make about four hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, about four hundred fifty thousand dollars for uh, for right. a family of four. Right. Uh, do you know what it takes? And globally, I would argue that to be in the one percent globally, most of our listeners are already there. We're already there. We're already baby. there. We're yeah. already so there. you are a one most percenter. Are, I am right. a one percenter. Yeah. You ever been on a cruise? And no, no. I'm going on one very soon. You're uh, gonna be. Lapping it up in luxury with the one percent, baby. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you need about eighty-five thousand dollars to go on a cruise. Uh, a good one, <laughs> a great one. You must, yeah. But it is. It's it's a sign of, and, and I'm sure you're excited to take your kids and do it with your kids. Absolutely, and that's sort of the yeah. focus, Especially right? Since I've never been on one, my wife either. So we felt really guilty, and I guess this might sort of touch on what we're talking about. We feel really guilty about the prospect, or we we were feeling really guilty about the prospect of going on a cruise without our kids because we started thinking about all of the memories that they were not going to be able to make with us. We started thinking about all of the sort of uh, largesse that we're going to get to enjoy. And we were like, well, we want our kids there to enjoy it with us. Um, yeah. I imagine, yeah. I imagine that if I were married a hundred years ago and somebody gave me a ticket to take off on the Titanic or the Andrea Dora or some other ship that was sort of transatlantic, I would have felt just fine about leaving my kids behind. Amanda and I are the same. We prioritize travel. Nice. We wanted to show the kids the world. Okay. Uh, and so we save up every year. Uh, so we, we usually throw a dart at a map of the world. Um, everybody gets one, and we throw a dart at a map of the world on New Year's Eve. Really? And uh, everybody gets one, and then we, we pick. We're a very democratic family. Oh, so you mean you, we Amanda, debate. and your two girls, girls throw your own darts. And then we pick. And, and we pick don't have to hit it exactly because it's a big okay. gap. Okay. But, uh, so wh where's the strangest place you've ever hit on the map? Um... Papua New Guinea. Oh, Somebody yeah. actually got it like dead center, and we did. We put didn't it on. We put it on the list, but we're not, I'm not going to Papua New Guinea. Okay. Until the president goes, I'm not going to go. President Biden just canceled a trip to Papua New Guinea to come back from the debt ceiling. Oh wow! By the way, we might all be uh, having a very different attitude and idea about parenting if we reach the debt ceiling next week. Yeah, might be out of job, might be out of Christmas money. Might not yeah, be coming. Might be run on a bank, and you know what a run on the bank will do. Everybody's seen um, so look, the movie. It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. So from a psychological evolutionary standpoint, from a Darwinian standpoint, yeah, yeah. does it make sense then that we're so focused on the child if we're having fewer? From an evolutionary perspective, it makes total sense that we are focused on the child. It makes total sense that we dote on them, that we are so enraptured with them, literally die for them. To that end, it would make sense that we do everything we can to not only have children, but to obviously raise them, protect them, uh, keep them sort of safe until they can turn around and have copies of themselves. Which, But you're asking, how, does, how do you sort of square that, given the fact that so few of us, especially the educated, the ones you would think believe in Darwinian theory, are having children, right? Yeah, it's it's very strange. Yeah. It, it's, well, I mean, well, I think in a, I, in a time period where uh, you were likely, if you had seven children, you were likely to lose one of them. If you had seven children, your wife had a twenty five percent chance of dying in one of those childbirths. Even today, yeah, childbirth is the it, single most dangerous moment in a woman's life. Life expectancy during that time is still only uh, forty five years. When That's Freud right. is born, right. it's like thirty five years for a man in Vienna. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. 
you know, I think the way in which we approached it from an evolutionary standpoint was more. Spread the seed. As many chances to survive as possible. And so now we have fewer and fewer yeah. to extend our genetic lines yeah. to, well, that's to just live one forever. Way. So uh, any, anybody who studies evolution <laughs> from uh, for a living, a biologist or a psychologist, for instance, and I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but I do like reading about and thinking about evolutionary psych. Not only is there one approach to making sure that you know the genes uh, are propagated, um, most people believe, or when they think about Darwin and um, evolution, they think about what? Um, survival. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, Darwin never said survival <laughs> of the fittest, at least not publicly. He said um, descent with modification. I know that doesn't right. sound nearly <laughs> as cool. But he also stressed, and from that, most people gathered that what that meant was it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? Survival is um, really, really a dirty, messy game. It's primal, baby. Yeah, you Primal. Talk about Absolutely. primal. I mean, it's, it's red in claw and teeth, That's right? right? And so you got to fight for your survival. And so the idea is that the strongest survive, right? The biggest, the strongest, the fastest survive. But of course, Darwin <laughs> became quite confused by some of his observations. What he said the sight of made him absolutely sick. The peacock. Really? Yeah, the peacock. You know why the peacock made Darwin sick? I have no idea. And that's exactly what Darwin said. If survival, if evolution is about dog-eat-dog -dog world, so to speak, if evolution is about fighting for your survival, how in the world does the peacock exist? That's because peacocks were big, beautiful, conspicuous, slow-moving, terrible flyers. By continuing to make observations about all these different species whose basic existence belied um, his understanding of this notion of descent and modification from a physical competitive perspective, he came up with another idea. It wasn't natural selection that was driving all humans, all mammals, all insects. It was also sexual selection. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That the makes idea, a lot yeah, of sense. Yeah, the idea is that women, women get to make the choice they are doing the choosing. They're doing the selecting based upon the mate, the potential mate that's the most sexy. And what does sexy do? Sexy is a sign that you've got good genes, baby, mm -hmm. right? If you can afford to grow these metabolically expensive eye spots and long tails, you can um, definitely pass on some genetics that are so worth something. Le let's talk about me, because that's my favorite topic. <laughs> let's talk about me. I and my you know listeners can't see this, but I am a physically unimpressive specimen. Well, I I don't have a lot of money. Right. They can tell that I have a high squeaky voice. Mm -hmm. So, I met my wife at the bus stop in seventh grade, and I worked really hard to lock that down. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, the the dating market yeah. for a high school freshman is bearish to begin with. Yeah. Um. So I really did everything I could to. Please, my girlfriend, yeah. now my wife. Now uh, the mother of your children. Now the mother of my But here was my question, my, okay. my bigger question. How does somebody like me send out the signals? I, if if I, I am not the peacock. Yeah. Is it? What is it? Is, yeah, how well, do, well, how well, do well, so there's a lot of sub areas in, in evolution that um, paint um, a more, well, a, a more comprehensive picture of how, 
um, evolution works. So on the one hand, there is survival of the the strongest, if you will, right? The fiercest, again, red in tooth and claw. The other side, there's that survival of the sexy, right? And and we can think about the uh, accoutrements or the traits that most people find sexy, right? Tall and strong and muscular and athletic and all of those things. But there are other ways to show your worth, genetic worth, value, right? There's the ability to um, storytell. There's the ability to make people laugh. There's the ability to uh, play with uh, young children. There's the ability to go to work and carve out a life for your family, right? In other words, what I believe, and this was um, pointed out by a man named Fisher uh, maybe 50 years ago, is that you have to have a way of demonstrating unequivocally, right, an honest signal before you mate with someone. They're going to find honest signals really, really attractive. And if what you're signaling is that you are a good catch, at least your genes are something that you know she would want to pass on to her children, then it doesn't matter if you're short. doesn't matter if you're ugly. doesn't matter if you're not strong. You could basically show um, that you're smart. You could show that you are well-rounded. You could show that you have patience. You could show that you like children. All these things are good signs. Look. But you have to really like children because that's not going to make the pheromones oh, pop. Oh, well, listen, though. Pheromones just get it started, baby, right? You, you got to sort of follow through. There are plenty of people out there that make great cads. They can have sex with a lot of people, right? But they don't make great dads. And over time, women have realized that, right? A woman, by the way, is more likely to want to pair up with a man who makes a good dad. But she might want to have sex with a man that just is a cad, right? So long-term relationships, from an evolutionary perspective, would actually maybe benefit men who don't have all those physical features that you think of as being most attractive. In fact, divorce rates, marital satisfaction seems to be higher if the man is under six feet. And if divorce rates are higher and there's more infidelity, there's more marital dissatisfaction for men over six feet. Well, I've always thought that you were kind of an outlier in that my understanding of a healthy marital situation, a good father. Yeah. Um, it, these are things that you usually find in younger men uh, uh. who are ready to get married. Who I want my daughters to marry like, later. Uh, um, I don't know. I think earlier. Yeah, that's I, a good, I, I that's a good question too. Ladies and gentlemen, let's follow that on the other side. I like where you're going with this. Absolutely. Uh, let's fact, just take you know a what? quick I think, little break. Uh, we could probably uh, we could probably call that part one and uh, do a part two. Yeah, that sounds good too. All right, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you on the other side, either way. 